and welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. This is the podcast which ponders the question, Jewish mothers, should every home have one? My name's Angela Epstein. And I'm Lynn Dover. And our third wheel, Noemi, is away at the moment, but she did send a note. And we are absolutely thrilled and delighted today to welcome the award-winning author, journalist, writer, speaker, Howard Jacobson. Howard, hello and welcome to Jewish Mother Me. Hello, lovely to be in uh, wherever you are. We're actually beaming <laughs> live from North Manchester, a part of the world which uh, which obviously has, has had a, a seminal influence on you and the work that you do. I grew up in that part of the world. Um, I moved there, my parents moved us there from Cheatham Hill and Salford, where the early Jewish families congregated before anybody had any money to move or anything. And we moved up to Presswich. Presswich was the first move of the Great Trek North. It's not the furthest north you could go, but it was a sign that things were getting better. And we went there when I was about nine, and I left to go to university 10 years later. So I spent 10 happy years in Presswich, North Manchester. Okay, so we are about 50 yards from Cheatham Hill here. And um, Angela and I are both Prestwich girls, so we understand and appreciate where you, you've come from. I probably took your mother's out. <laughs> Actually, no, I have a horrible feeling I took your grandmother's <laughs> As I say, this is the podcast that celebrates Jewish maternal wisdom, amongst many other things. And as luck would have it, the latest of your 23 books is, of course, Mother's Boy, which is this stunning memoir, which you've only got round to writing out, the, am I allowed to say, at the age of 80. Uh, that's what I am now. <laughs> You're not really allowed to say it, but have you said it, there's not an awful lot I can do about it. It was published early this year when I was still 79, and it took me two years to write. So it's a youthful book. Actually, it's a book of my, it's a book of my late 70s. I wrote it in my late 70s. It stops at a certain point. It stops at about the age 40 when I start writing. So I am late with everything. So, Howard, obviously, this is the Jewish Mother Me podcast. The book is called Mother's Boy. How could you describe your mum to us? If I knew that, I wouldn't have needed to write those 23 books, not all of which are descriptions of my mother, but my mother pops up in one form or another in most of them. To be absolutely frank with you, I don't know who on earth my mother was, and I'm discovering more about her every minute. Only today, as chance would have it, my wife said to me, I don't think you knew who your mother was. And that was because I received an email from a well-known Manchester figure, a musician, an artist, a very, very creative and successful man who lived on the same street as me when I grew up. And he said, you don't know, Howard, how much I owe to the Jacobsons, how much I owe to your brother, how much I owe to your father, who my father worked with on a market stall nearby, but above all, your mother, who taught me visually and when I read that out, I had to, I, I'm getting very sentimental, I think, Nolan. So I get upset. If someone pays me a compliment like that, if someone says, I adored your father, or I adored your mother, I get upset about it. Because I am reminded of the degree to which I did not. I didn't, I always feel this is one of the things my book's about. I didn't adore them enough. And other people from outside adored them more, better, uh, more warmly, more openly, more honestly. But then they didn't have the other stuff called shame, which all children have. When he said my mother made him look at things and taught him visually, I don't know who he was talking about because I don't think of my mother as that. I think of my mother as many things, as a wordsmith. She was a wonderful talker, my mother. 
She loved the sound of words. She expressed herself well. She taught me. She taught the whole family. I have a brother and a sister younger. She taught us all to express ourselves well. She read. She taught me. She read poetry to me when I was a little boy. Good, serious poet. She was a serious reader. She never went to university. She left school at 14. Where did she get it from? She died two years ago. And immediately my sister sent me diaries. Um, my sister went mooching around. She said, I know you'd love these. She sent me diaries. And there's one remarkable year when my mother is 17. So that's about 1940, 1941. She's not at school. She's not been at school for years. She would have left when she was 14. And she's describing her life in Manchester in 1940-41, with the bombs falling, worrying about her mother, worrying about her younger sister, who's been sent into the country, an evacuee, but nonetheless living a life in Manchester, seeing lots of men, one of whom was my father, who she's a bit worried about, not sure he's the right one for her, because he keeps asking her for a kiss, and saying, if you don't kiss me, I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) And then he says, if you don't kiss me, I'm going to take a drink. That makes her really angry. It also makes me and the family very funny because my father's idea of drink was like a half half a thimbleful of Polwyn's number, whatever it was. <laughs> but the most extraordinary thing is the life she's describing. She's working as a milliner. She's collecting money for the Jewish hospital. But in the evening, she's going to opera. She's going to concerts. She talks about a play by George Bernard Shaw she's just seen. She talks about going to see the film of Wuthering Heights. She compares it with the novel Wuthering Heights. She is more intelligent at 17, more culturally aware than I was. And if you ask how she would compare now with a girl of 17 or a boy of 17, it's another world. It's absolutely another world. Of course, she doesn't have the horrible, horrible distraction of that thing that's bringing us together, which is the internet and all that and she's out there living to all intents and purposes in manchester a cultured life she goes to the library she said i love reference libraries i assume she's describing manchester reference library which i loved and used to study there in the middle of town i love reference libraries she just loved books so the painting thing i don't get but all right that's the side of my mother that i didn't encounter and i go on discovering things about my mother when i meet people who talk about her who describe her in a way, looking at what, the way she talks about herself in her diary when she's 17, you get the sense of a very confident, assured woman, capable of going anywhere, talking to anybody about anything. The mother I remember, so when there's that date, from when I'm six or seven and I stop looking at my mother carefully, was quieter than that, shyer than that, more anxious than that, to the degree that I wonder how far motherhood, one hears this, motherhood, it became her life, motherhood, is what she lived for, her children, her children's children, their children, that became her life, common story. But I'm not sure it was good for her to have me, I'm glad she did, because here I am, and otherwise I wouldn't have had the fun I've had, but it's as though it diminished her in some way, she would never have said that, I doubt she would ever have thought that but she became a little shrunken, it seemed to me. But that might be just because the way a a son sees a mother. Did I shrink her because I was ashamed of her when she came to collect me from school? Why? She was a nice-looking woman. But then sometimes I didn't like that dress, and I thought she'd put on a bit of weight, and she embarrassed me in front of my friends. But I was her most stern critic. That's terrible, isn't it, that your child, the child for whom you give everything, 
is your most stern critic. That's the quirk of nature, isn't it? We talk about Jewish mothers as sometimes having a stereotypical character, don't we? We sort yeah. of yeah, the balabuster. But she seemed to want to sort of better herself. She wanted to enjoy her culture uh, much more than most women probably, I don't know, at that time. How did she make you want to learn? Well, you said she wanted to better herself. What she mainly set about once she was married and, and had me and then the next two was to better us. She wanted us to do well. She had high ambitions for us. She did better by the two boys, my um my brother is four years younger than me and my sister is six years younger than me. We, the boys did better. There's no question of it. We were given more encouragement. I don't say we were given more advantages, but we were told we were given more confidence. And my sister, we're all still alive, thank God, and well. But my sister never got the, I don't think, the opposite breaks. I think that was a sign of the times. That certainly happened with my mother and her brother as well, I think. I hope if he ever listens to this... He was the one that was encouraged to go to medical school and do all that sort of thing. But my mother was encouraged to get married and have children. So definitely a generational thing. It's fear, partly. It was fear. Fear that something could go wrong. Fear that um, she would not be happy. The most important thing that she wanted for us was that we be happy. I write about this in my memoir. Mm. It's so surprising sometimes to realise that, you know, you think you've given them... I've looked Mar, I've won prizes, I've written all these books. I know you wanted to make me to be a writer because you valued being a writer. I discovered from her diary, she describes what she wanted. She never told me she wanted to be a writer. Suddenly I opened up this diary, ambition, it says in big letters. Oh. Ambition, I want to be a writer. How did she that descri- make you feel when you, when you were sort of, you came face to face with this, obviously this spent hope because she didn't become a writer i mean she she brought up the most marvelous writer which was a huge contribution to literature in itself but to come face to face with that kind of lost ambition how did that make you feel as a successful it writer? upset me a great deal mm. uh, it upset me to feel that she'd not lived out her her ambition for herself i'm not going to say dream i all that living out your dream stuff but she had ambitions but she never talked about that as a failed ambition. So I don't know whether that was just something that popped into her head and went out again. When did you discover this? I discovered this not long after she died, just as I was finishing the book. I was just finishing writing the memoir. So it, in time for me to put... So the memoir begins with her death, actually, although I was writing it while she was still alive. And it ends beautifully, I think. Thank you, Mum. I never say Mum, I say Mother. If you catch me saying mum, say don't do it. I never ever say, why did I say that? I never say mum, I hate mum. Thank you, mother. Thank you for giving me a terrific end to the book. And that's why it's one that I am a mother's boy. In every way I am a mother's boy. I'm a mother's boy in that she made me, obviously. She also created the kind of boy I was. Mother's boy also implies being a bit of a softie, and I'm certainly a bit of a softie. She made me frightened. I think that was one thing uh, it's hard to thank her for. She made us all more frightened than we need be. And that's what surprises me about the change from this woman walking through Manchester with bombs falling, this young woman, age 17, didn't seem frightened at all, to the woman who, who became much more frightened once she had children because she had us to protect and us, us to lose. So we became a source of fear for her. And her fear for us, partly what made her restrict my sister's Freedom in some ways, just in some ways, but also she planted fear 
in me, everything. She made me anxious. I am an anxious person. And she made me an anxious person. I don't mind being an anxious person. I think if you're a writer, you probably are an anxious person. But she made me shy and she made me hesitant to try things on. So when I went to university with my pockets full of toilet rolls, because she said, when I went to university, make sure you take enough toilet rolls. That's the kind of anxiety that was instilled into us, all the things that could go wrong, all the minor embarrassments, all the minor inconveniences, the social inconveniences of life. My mother was a mistress of those and what they could be. But the lack of confidence meant that when I went to university, I did not embrace all that university had to offer. To be honest with you, when I went to university, I embraced nothing that university had to offer. I went to Cambridge and I wasted that experience. Not as far as the serious part was concerned. I went there to read, I read. I went there to learn how to read, to be all about literature, to talk about the importance of literature. All that happened. But anything beyond that, anything beyond the lecture room or the seminar room, didn't happen for me. And that was because I got from my mother... Why blame her? I blame her because I blame her that I didn't join things or become an actor or become a singer or become a comedian or any of the other things I might have liked to be because it certainly wasn't my father that did it because my father did everything, absolutely everything. He jumped in everywhere. He never said no to a challenge. He was the most confident, easygoing, assured social presence I've ever, ever seen. My mother was the polar opposite. And if, insofar as it was a tussle between them, and it was truly a tussle between them, my mother won. People certainly from the outside looking in, uh, when they think about the role of the Jewish mother or what she represents, the caricature, you know, comes with roaring with full force. Territorial, she'll feed you till you're going to be ill. She feels guilty. She will love you and smother you with affection, overprotective traits that, that many of our guests in, in previous episodes have identified. We, obviously, as, as the children of Jewish mothers, the love of nachas, the Hebrew word for our listeners, of getting that unadulterated pleasure. If you can see behind on the wall, um, there's a picture of Cambridge because Lynn's son went there. Um, uh, so he is, he really feels that... Which college is he at? He, he was, he was at Jesus. But he really feels, he identifies completely with you because you, he's lived around here his whole life and then he went off to Cambridge as well. In that realm of being the Jewish mother, all those characteristics that certainly stereotype points to, was it a traditional Jewish home? You came from, a, as you say, sort of a working class background. Was there always huge amounts of food on the stove? Were you observant in any way? What were the kind of sitcom parameters that people looking in would see as identifiable as a Jewish home? It absolutely wasn't like that at all. We weren't observant. We didn't know what to observe. Neither my mother or father got it, really. They felt there were things they ought to do. And they very much wanted me to marry a Jewish girl, which I half did. Um, but we got there. <laughs> and trouble came in the family when my brother started to go out with a non-Jewish girl. My sister started to go out with non-Jewish girl. That mattered. They, had, they couldn't have told you why. They couldn't have told you what the Jewishness was that they needed to preserve. Just that. Just the marriage was nothing. I had a bar mitzvah. They would have felt wrong not to have a bar mitzvah. Beyond that, we didn't know what was what. And I was brought up a pagan, really, as far as that was <laughs> concerned. The Jewishness that I came to love was a much more, if you like, intellectual Jewishness. It was a much more Jewishness of thought and of the mind. Though when I came to talk about Jewishness in my first books, no one was more astonished than my parents. But you're not interested in that. 
But she was not, I would never have heard the word nachas. She didn't do that. I would have heard, did she even say she was proud? I don't know. She didn't go in for that. She was not a typical Jewish mother. People who met her, my Jewish friends, loved both my parents because they, they were a relief from their own typically Jewish parents. The fact that you know she was a reader of Tennyson and that she was a reader of Matthew Arnold, Robert Browning and Wordsworth gives you a clue to the ways that she wasn't Jewish. There were not many Jewish books in the house. I remember there was Cecil Roth's Why I Am a Jew. Maybe she read that. But mainly the books that she read weren't Jewish. The culture that she felt that she embraced was absolutely English and literary. So to that degree, she was not a Jewish mother. But the food, yes, absolutely the food. That way of never sitting down to a table with us, because that was not her position. Her place was to wander around like the providing genius of the place and see to food, see that we were fed. There was always too much food. She was the most appalling cook. She made us terrible food. She didn't know what food to make us. You asked me to remember my mother's kitchen, the kitchen which I grew up. I smell burning pans. <laughs> Not because she was making something wonderful in those pans, but because she was putting tins in them. And she had a habit of... My memory is what you meant to do is when you put a tin in a pan, you put it in boiling water. And you... This is a long time ago when people ate like that. She didn't empty the tin. She put the tin whole into boiling water. And you meant to kind of open it a little bit, put the tin opener in it and open it a little bit so it can hiss. My mother always forgot to open it. And she always forgot that it was boiling in the pan and then the pan dried, the water dried. So we would only know this because if you have a tin in a hot pan, it starts to rattle because it's the tin that starts to bang again, given the heat. <laughs> the tin starts to bang against the pan and sometimes it explodes. And sometimes it explodes and your dinner goes on the ceiling. So for a while, until my father got round to painting the ceiling, uh, my mother's culinary life uh, was, on, was, on the, was on the ceiling. She was not that kind of a provider. She was doing other things. She was thinking other thoughts. I'm not saying she was not a providing mother. She was, but she wasn't good at that particular thing. We had bagels in the house. We would go and buy the bagels. But the bagels were my father's delicacy. I don't think I've ever seen my mother prepare a bagel, but my father prepared a bagel. It was a wondrous sight because he had a particular favourite bagel. And the favourite bagel had, and he liked to cut it, had um, mm. cream cheese and smetna <laughs> and that, And he would put the one on, I can't remember which one went first now, he would lay the one. But the, I mean, the idea was just cheese upon cheese upon cheese. Ours was a very cheesy household. My mother made a lot of cheese too. Now, I've seen my mother just slap cheese on a bagel. That would be her idea. But for my father's preparation of a bagel with these two creamy mm. white cheeses, it was a wondrous sight. And he bought the bagels. I never cannot remember ever going to a shop buying bagels with my mother. But buying bagels with my father, yes. I noticed that your Yiddish is very similar to my family's Yiddish that you use in the book. So it's very odd to see words written down that you had no idea that you, you've never seen in print before. Ongi stopped and Geigers unter hate. 
and Mishigas and <laughs> Alish Vaz Yaren. All these words, I was. it's been... That's about, you've now just used the extent of my Yiddish. <laughs> but I, I don't I, have a very big store of these words. I, I make the ones I've got go a long way. When I read your book, it feels to me like I'm reading a, like a, um, a cousin's account of my sort of family life. How do people who don't have any contact with the North Manchester Jewish community or Yiddish, do you know how they feel about your writing? Yes, sometimes. I used to, I mean, I've been doing this all along, really. I introduced Yiddish into my very first novel. And at first, people did complain. What does that mean? What does that mean? And say, why don't you have, you know, a glossary? And I thought long and hard about a glossary and thought, no, I don't want to do that. Because I wanted the Yiddish to appear as I knew it, as part of the language that I spoke. So that it's a kind of, the Yiddish is a kind of an addition to English. So I didn't want to separate them because we didn't separate them when we spoke. No. But my father spoke his English words, Yiddish words. He didn't pause and I'm now going to use a Yiddish word, get the glossary out. We just use them. And I, now people don't seem to mind. I, might be that I've got better. You learn how to use them in such a way that you're given a clue to what the word means in the context so that they can get it. But the whole point of these Yiddish words is that they are what they sound. Only stopped is... <laughs> It's what it sounds like. And there's a joy in using them. And I, and I kind of think this is one of my gifts. It's my gift to the non-Jewish world. My <laughs> gift is to extend their vocabularies and give them words which are more expressive. Wonderfully expressive language though English is. But some of these words are more expressive than the words that they use. And now, every now and then, I'll run into somebody not Jewish and they're using these words. And it's interesting because with Yiddish... There are certain words, obviously they're very expressive, but there doesn't seem to be an English sort of alternative. And I know working in the secular workplace as a journalist, I'll say, what is all this mishagas, you know, this nonsense? And my non-Jewish colleagues will say mishagas, and I'll say, it's, it's more than nonsense. It's such a full-blooded word. Um, yeah, you you can't, yeah. can't do that. You mentioned earlier on, Howard, that your mum just wanted you to be happy, which obviously is the mantra of most mothers, never mind Jewish mothers, but that she didn't necessarily feel the need to be proud. Now, so, for example, when you won the Man Booker in 2010 for the Finkler question, if I was your mum, I'd have had T-shirts printed so that every time I went into Tesco, it would have said, by the way, my son has just won the Man Booker. Did you know? As big a moment as that was, you know, complete triumph in the literary world. How did she react to something so extraordinary and, and so wonderful? Well, she would not have had a T-shirt made. That's <laughs> that would have been drawing attention to it. And the whole thing is you mustn't draw attention to something. You mustn't do that. She was extremely funny. There are some terrific stories. I, I will tell you one because it's too good to miss, but you might know it, but it doesn't matter. Around the booker. She assumed that there was never any chance that I was going to win the book, as indeed I assumed there was never any chance I was going to win the book, not because I didn't think I deserved it, but I thought I deserved it for so many books before, and I didn't think the Finkler question was actually, between ourselves, as good as those books before, and was much more private, actually. I was amazed when it even got long-listed. When it got long-listed, my mother said, now, listen, I hope you're not going to... She'd bring me up in the morning, I hope you're not going to start thinking... Her first thought... Her first thought was, what happens if I don't win and I'm disappointed? And that was the thing that she sought more than anything else to save her children 
from disappointment. So she rang me day after day. Don't expect to win. Don't expect. <laughs> oh, don't want to build your then head. Then I was shortlisted. Then she got even more anxious. I know you. I know you. You got. I said you don't know. If you think I'm going to win, you don't know me at all. I am your child. I am your boy. I am like you in this. I don't expect good things. Good things don't happen to us. It won't happen. She rang me up on the morning of the prize. I was amazed. She was following it this closely. Jewish books don't win this prize. She said. I said. I know that's true. In the main, they don't. And, and it won't. And she said, just so that you know, I'm not going to be listening to the news at night <laughs> and find out. Just, I've decided what's going to happen. That's the, I have nothing more to say about it. I said, that's fine. And she said, and you promise me you're not hoping. I said, I promise you I'm not hoping. And I wasn't. I truly was not hoping. Anyway, it happened. And I, just before I told I was, once I got the prize and all that, I was then told I would be swept off into another room where the world's press was. It's an astonishing thing. It's like, you know, it's as though you've just declared war. Everybody is there. Thousands of cameras, thousands of people. And I was told by the book of people, you'll be doing this for about three hours. So I said, well, just let, I better ring my mother. <laughs> so I rang my mother and she said, I know. I said, oh. you weren't supposed to be. She said, I know. And I'm, I, furious. I've got the plats. I said, why? What's the matter? Oh, I'm furious. I said, what, did you want somebody else to win? I said, no, don't be silly. I was listening to you on the news and you were making your speech. And suddenly they said, we have to leave Howard Jacobson at the, where it wasn't the mansion, at the Guild Hall now, because some important news has come through. And the important news was that the, the Chilean miners, do you remember in this year, it was yes. 2000, I yes. remember the year I won the prize. Chilean miners had been underground for a long time. They'd been rescued. That was the news. My mother said, I'm furious. They'd been under there for six months. Couldn't they have waited another ten minutes? Really? There you have the soul. That is the soul of my And so equally then, okay, so the book I had a build-up to it. Uh, you came to novel writing uh, at the age of 40. Uh, your first novel, Coming From Behind, was published in 1983, I believe. So when that first book arrived, when the book comes from the publisher, presumably in hardback, and you, did you say to mum, look... I'm a writer. And if so, what was her response when the book was in your hand with the name Howard Jacobson on the front? Well, we're all playing it cool, remember? <laughs> and I'm not going, look, look, I'm a writer. We don't do that here. I said, finally, finally, after all the heartache and all the saying, I'm going to do it. Because, I mean, I'd been saying that I'm going to write a novel for, for most of those 40 years. And, you know, my father, who was much crueler than my mother, would go, any sign of that book yet? Any sign of that book yet? So finally I could say, look, it's here. And it was that, really. It was not triumph, but at last it's here. My mother was funny about it. I wasn't sure how they'd feel about my first novel coming from behind, because there is quite a cruel portrait of them in it. Uh, and I thought they probably wouldn't like it. But it turns out that it took them a while to tell me that they did like it. She very rarely talked to me about what was in the books. Very, very rarely. But what she started to do after a certain while is make it perfectly clear she was, by the time she was in her late 70s, 80s, she wasn't reading them. She was just collect, made sure she always had a copy. So there's a good, there was a good collection of them on her bookcase, along with her treasuries of Tennyson's poetry and things. But when a new book came, particularly if I went up to, I didn't always go up to Manchester with it, sometimes I'd post it. But if I went up to Manchester with it, she'd, she'd go, she'd sort of look at it and she'd scrutinise it. She'd lift the glasses up. 
I always hated the way she'd lift the glasses up like that to peer. She'd say, if you can't see with glasses, don't wear the bloody thing. She'd lift them up <laughs> to peer at it. And she'd, oh no, she'd just look at the cover and she'd go, I really loved your first book. <laughs> do you have a favourite book? Are they like babies? You can't distinguish between them all. Or do you have the, you know, with Jewish mothers, we don't have favourites. What about with your books? Do you have one that's particular? Do I have a favourite? Yes, of course. Well, you always have the favourite, the one that you're writing. So I am writing a novel at the moment, and I think that's great. But, of course, my, my memoir I like very much. But of, of, of my novels, I think probably Kaluki Nights is the best. Jay is probably the most powerful. But Kaluki Nights, which is does everything. Kaluki Nights is very funny, and it's tragic. And um, it should have won the Booker Prize. And many people said it should have won and really, I often think it's a shame it didn't win the Booker Prize because it would have. It's a more engaging novel than the Finkler Question. The Finkler Question can put people off. It's so. I mean, Jews just talking about being Jewish, very, very <laughs> uh, insulated in that way. And the Kaluki Nights isn't like that. Although it's full of Jews talking about being Jewish, it's in a different spirit. Yeah. So that one, yes, Kaluki Nights. Your mother wasn't the only sort of mothering influence on you, was she? There were other female characters in your childhood who um, took a great interest in you. My mother's sister, who was a few years younger than her, very spinsterly, she did in the end find a husband, which is, no, that's not a fair way to put it, a husband found her, and she had a, a happy married life for a short period. But she was, look, I was brought up by three women. I was brought up by my mother, they were all young. Remember, my mother's about 19 when I'm born. Wow. Her own mother was not that old. Although in those days, you know, if you were 60, you looked, you looked an old person. And my mother's sister, who probably when I was born was 17 or something. My father was away, not fighting, but away in the war. The war was coming to an end. And they had me to think about. And they thought about me and played with me. And I entertained them. And I could still see my, very vividly, I see myself prancing up and down singing I'm in the Army, Mrs Brown, and singing war songs and things. And then my father, who was being a tailor in the army, would send me little suits, which I'd wear, little soldier suits, and they'd all clap. So I had three women just clapping everything. Everything I did, everything I said. And I was close to all three of them. I loved my grandmother. I really, really loved my grandmother. She took me around the old Jewish Manchester, High Town and Salford. She took me to the kosher butchers. She was the one I heard most Yiddish from. Some of her conversations in the butchers were completely Yiddish, no English spoken. And she carted me around and we were like, we were like, I was like a little boyfriend for her. She was like a little girlfriend for me. I think her, her marriage was unhappy then. Uh, her husband turned into, not a, uh, uncharacteristically for a Jewish man, had, was, big, was drinking. Um, and that that was making her unhappy, and he was bad-tempered. So she was lonely, um, and she had me. But my mother's sister, my Auntie Joyce, when I was eight or nine, she taught me French, she taught me shorthand type, because she was a shorthand typist, all sorts of skills that I don't have anymore. I went to grammar school speaking fluent French after a year, thinking I'm going to kill it. And then I kind of lost it, and they all got better, and I lost mine. I used to like going to ruined castles and things like that. I talk about this in the book. And mm. she would take me to the ruin. We'd get on a little coach and she'd take me Aww. to Bolton Abbey and Tinton Abbey and things. And we were very close. We were, and she is another... My memoir has got a lot of shame because I am ashamed of the way I felt about it. I'm ashamed of the fact that I kept feeling ashamed. When I got to about 14 or 15, I thought, 
my auntie Joyce is not right for me. She's not, I don't want people to think she's my girlfriend or something. I got embarrassed by it. Yeah. It got too spinsterly. And she didn't look after herself. She didn't look after her face the way you should. There is such a thing as a spinsterly face. There are things you're meant to do. She didn't know how to do it. And I got really ashamed of her. But I had a lot of female attention, an enormous amount of female attention when I was young and growing up. And um, I've sought female attention ever since. You talk about shame, obviously, one, another kind of stereotypical characteristic that runs like Blackpool through a stick of rock is Jewish guilt. Uh, and you, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about maybe feeling a little guilty now of how you, were, you felt when you're revisiting emotions. You have Lithuanian heritage on your mother's side. Was there anything of that persecution complex coming through that we sometimes associate with that Eastern European background? Yeah, there was. I we used to joke that whenever the doorbell rang, we'd all run under the table and hide because the Nazis were here. There was a period when my mother was very, got very self-conscious about the house. Uh, we had no money. My dad was not making a good job of earning money. My mother felt her house was very poor compared to other people's, and she didn't want people in. So she didn't like opening the door to people. So we'd kind of the doorbell would ring, and we'd all go very still. So that nobody would know we were in there. And the joke was, my joke was, it's because that's the Nazis are here. But of course, we didn't truly think that. It's very interesting that you, you mentioned she's Lithuanian. And I didn't know she was Lithuanian until quite late. When I wrote my book and then made the television series Root Schmutz, I'd only just found out that she was Lithuanian. and went to the area where her grandparents, who I'd known, they lived into their 90s, but my great-grandmother, my mother's grandmother, came to my first wedding, as it happened. And I dug up the shtetls where they came from, and my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother came from quite close to the Polish border in Lithuania. And I got very interested in who Lithuanian Jews were, and then got fascinated by the fact that my father was a Ukrainian. And the Ukrainian Jews were, of course, much more Russian. They wrestled bears, they lifted chairs up, they were comedians, they were tumblers, they were acrobats. They were altogether wilder Jews, and Hasidic Judaism comes from that part of the world. And when you read about the first Hasidic rabbis, they were kind of tumblers and acrobats themselves. They came bouncing into, into Western Europe with that kind of Ukrainian vitality. The Lithuanians were entirely different. The Lithuanians were studious. In fact, the Lithuanians completely opposed the, uh, the, the Ukrainian way of being Jewish. They were called Mitnagedim. They were against things. We are. We say no to things. My mother often used to think my mother said no to everything, and I say no to things. And the Mitnagedin and the Russians were, and the Ukrainians were daggers drawn. It was like, so what was happening in the house I grew up in was a kind of theological, a replay of a long-running the theological battle in Jewish life between the serious, naysaying, Bible-reading, philosophical... Lithuanians and the full of life, take it as it goes, Ukrainians. And that really was the story of my life, because although they didn't know it, my mother didn't know she'd come from Lithuania, but although they didn't know it, they were playing that out, and I was in the middle of this. All that vitality from my father on the one hand, and all that disapproval from my mother on the other. And I am absolutely the product of that. Obviously, the big theme running through the podcast, running through your incredible canon of work, 
through our veins for all of us here. And this is a real Jewish podcast because we're doing it at home because Lynn's husband's just walked in. Um, so Hello, Lynn's husband. Jonathan. <laughs> he's a nice lawyer from Liverpool. You should only know such a boy. Um, but seriously. I'm glad to know. I'll talk to you later, Jonathan. I've got a couple of things. <laughs> hey. When did I start the clock running? <laughs> but seriously, what, one thing I wanted to sort of to bring to a close is we've been discussing Jews. Jewishness, our Jewish heritage, obviously your Jewish heritage, the, the wonderful picture you've created of, of your mum and of your family. Have you ever in your life, through your career, through Cambridge, your work as a lecturer, your glittering career as a writer, have you ever felt the need to keep your head down, maybe in a climate of anti-Semitism or any of other those times? No, I haven't actually. I haven't. I haven't necessarily gone out of my way to announce it, but I've never hidden it. Or It's funny because of all the th I've been ashamed of everything including myself a lot, and yet I've never been ashamed of the idea of being Jewish. I've been ashamed of some manifestations of being Jewish, some of the things I would see in Manchester sometimes with some of the, the ways of being Jewish. I'm ashamed of, I don't like using shame of this, but anyway, um, shame to me is a much more, I use it much more personally. But it's made, let's say this, it, some aspects of, of Jewish life have made me angry. And one is the Philistinism. Philip Roth, the novelist, the American Jewish novelist, Portnoy, novelist, I very much, I never knew him, but I admired him as a novelist, thought he was a terrific novelist, uh, was very scornful of English Jews. He said they were just an unremarkable bunch of people with no interest in literature or art or anything. And to a large degree, that's true. I think it's changing. I think the younger generations are changing. But a lot of the people that my parents knew, that generation, and the next one underneath them, was a very material existence. It had to be. They all they had livings to earn. They had work to do. The other stuff was a luxury, if you like. Though it was not a luxury my mother ever said no to. My mother had it. My mother was not a Philistine, as I've told you, not in any way a Philistine woman. And I was lucky, therefore, to have her. But I hated that. I get it still now. I'll go back to Manchester and someone will, will say, I tried to read your book, Howard, but there were too many difficult words. <laughs> oh, there are not too many difficult words. There are not. And if there are a couple of difficult words, look them up. I tell you, Kaluki Nights, my favourite novel, out of this anger, not with anti-Semites, as it turned out, though the book turned into that, but with other Jews. I'd gone, I'd been invited by a rabbi to a Friday night service. I thought, okay, my mother very rarely did Friday night services. She wouldn't have known what to do. We didn't light candles. Once in a blue moon, she lit a candle. I thought, all right, I'll go and have a, I'll go and I'll have a Friday night service and see what it's like. At the Friday night service, I was touched by it. Thought he was a good rabbi, davened well. Uh, I got fascinated by Habdallah and all that and the use that's made in the how the Habdallah service reminds you of creation, the first book of creation, the separation of things, fascinated me to think, as I'd never thought before, but maybe all Jews think it, because they go to Friday night dinner, that what we are doing, separating the Friday from the Shabbos from the other days, is we're remembering how God separated light from darkness, water from separation. Uh, separation is a key element in intellectual Jewish life. We se separate ourselves, we separate, we make distinctions. It's very important. I liked it. I thought, this is terrific. Serious rabbi, this is good. Finish the meal. Okay, now we start to talk. And then he said, okay, now let's talk about lighter things. And he wanted to talk about the free, taking the family to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. 
Now, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is the most stupid, stupid thing you will ever have seen. It's just so stupid. You cannot believe And here was the rabbi loving it. And then they moved from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Am I a snob? Yes, I'm a snob. I'm a They then moved from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to EastEnders. And I thought, this rabbi who offers himself to be a spiritual man is not a spiritual man at all because if you are spiritual it doesn't just happen while you're lighting candles it moves throughout your life he has no seriousness he has no weight therefore he is not and i began kaluki nights with this and the idea of kaluki nights is that was all those jewish women that i knew who were not my mother's friends she never played kaluki but other people my first wife's family many of whom were lovely, but a lot of their friends played Kaluki. And I used Kaluki. Kaluki is the symbol of Jews with this powerful, tragic, serious history, squandering it on nothingness. So yes, then I have been, and it didn't lower my head and say, I wish it wasn't Jewish. I just wish they weren't Jewish. <laughs> you are quite vocal in supporting Israel in a very sort of, well, I find it a very sensible approach. You're not afraid of standing up and talking about Israel as well in a Jewish context, are you? No, and I think you have to do it. I think it's very, very important to do it because I think the battleground, and we're always going to be on a battleground, we are always going to be fighting. A Jew will always be fighting for his space, for his right, for the right to describe himself, for what he is, for what she is, for what they believe in. The battleground has changed now and it's moved to Israel. That's where anti-Semitism finds itself now and it finds and it gives itself a new name and that new name is anti-Zionism. And I think, I feel very much a preacher about this, a teacher about this anyway. I feel very much that we should read things up, know more about Zionism, know more about the foundation of the state of Israel and refute that charge. If you hate Zionism, as Jeremy Corbyn hated Zionism, if you say that Zionism was from the very start an aggressive, genocidal, imperialist, colonialist enterprise. That is anti-Semitic. It's not just ignorant, it's anti-Semitic. A, because it's inaccurate, because the, the early Zionists were not like that. Zionism was a movement that spread all over Europe. It affected people like the English novelist George Eliot, that was not imperialist and colonialist. People understood that there was a need for the Jewish people to enjoy some renewal, to find some renewal of themselves, to make good what they'd been thinking about and hankering for for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is to go back where they came from. And that wasn't just a distant dream. Jews had been going back there for many, many years. After the Spanish Inquisition, many Jews went there. There were Jewish people living in Israel long before the Balfour Declaration and long before Zionism had its way. But mainly because Jews were in danger. And long before the Holocaust, Jews were being killed in the parts of Eastern Europe where our parents all came from, which is why our parents came. They were escaping. They weren't thinking it might be nice to pop over and see what's happening in England. They were fleeing for their lives. <laughs> and if you refuse to understand that as part of their flight from being murdered was the state of Israel, if you refuse to grant them that, then I think that's anti-Semitic. It lacks sympathy, it lacks knowledge, and it's a willful distortion of Jewish necessity. And I think it's important we do. That doesn't mean that we can't say we wish the, this Jewish administration and that Jewish administration didn't do things differently. 
That doesn't mean we can't feel when we see the next Gaza thing breaking out. It doesn't break our hearts to see what's happening over there on behalf of the Palestinians as well as the Jews. You can feel both these things. But the minute you go, I cannot bear to see what's happening to, to the Palestinian people. And it's happening because the Jews always have been Zionistic murderers and so on. That is an anti-Semitic position to take. And I think it's terribly important that we... Who, who are supposed to understand this, go on making those distinctions. Howard, thank you. Amen. It has been the most glorious hour listening to you. We could listen all day, but, you know, we don't want Lynn's shoulder of lamb to curdle. Or no. Yeah, right, yeah, right. so. <laughs> um, well, I've enjoyed talking to you. It's nice to be to think that my voice is moving around a living room in... Um, in North Manchester. <laughs> That's nice. And uh, thanks for having me. And... Um, well, one thing we say, one thank you so much, Howard. One thing we say just very quickly before we finish is this is the Jewish Mother Me podcast. And obviously, as I've said, Jewish mothers should everyone home have one. If there was one soundbite, one piece of Jewish maternal wisdom you would, would disseminate, you would give out to our listeners that you've picked up, what would it be? The kind of, you know, back of a fag packet piece of Jewish wisdom if you have something that you can share. I think we should remember that we have the best sense of humour of any other people and we have the best sense of humor because we know this is my piece of wisdom i will give you my piece of sure wisdom. that's good for us okay, so this is not something i've heard it's mine i've coined it people say why are jews so funny and that is jews are the funniest people they've ever been because jews have got the best sense of humor because they know that life is not funny amen mm. howard jacobson on behalf of me angela and Lynn and our producer Phil from Northern Air Productions <laughs> and Lynn's husband Jonathan over there a real family yes. a real family production okay what what we lack in in obviously in, in all the upfront sort of seriousness we give you with warmth and, and Jewish love sending out to you but we thank you so much on behalf of Jewish Mother Me for joining us my today my pleasure and I, I receive your Jewish love with gratitude it's thank been a privilege all the very best to you. and every every good wish with the book we hope uh, we hope that it, it continues to get all the success it deserves until next Next time, I'm Lynn Dover. I'm Angela Epstein. Bye. Bye.